For many kids, Noah and his ark is a cute little story of cuddly animals in an impossibly small and oddly shaped boat. And it kind of avoids the disturbing reality of that whole story. Because if we've seen pictures of some of the flooding disasters in this world, like the, the Boxing Day tsunami in the Indian Ocean in 2004, when 230,000 people died. Or the tsunami that hit Japan in 2011, killing about over 16,000 people. Then I think we start to understand the horror of what happened in the flood in Noah's day. It's not like a little happy event in the world's history. You can sing a happy little song about it. Because although we don't know the population of the world at the time of Noah, what we do know is that every single person but a handful of people died that day. And the only thing that determined whether you died or whether you survived was whether you were in or whether you were out of the ark. So we are going to read Genesis chapter 7 uh, this morning. It's not a, a cheery passage. It's not a, a song, a passage you'd like to sing a happy song to. But I think it really does teach us a very crucially important lesson this morning. So Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every unclean animal, a male and its mate. And also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the floodwaters came on the earth and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and all of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every Every wild animal according to its kind. All livestock according to its kinds. Every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind. Every bird according to its kind. Everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. 
For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. Last time that we were looking at the book of Genesis, we read how God told Noah to build an ark for him and his family, but also for two of all living creatures, male and female. That was to ensure the survival, not just of humans, but also of every kind of animal that God had created. But here, did you notice that God gave more detailed instructions? Look back at verse 2. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate. That's obviously not part of most of these kind of Noah's Ark songs, because I don't know how you'd work out that in the song. Sevens and twos. But here God made a distinction between the clean animals and the unclean animals. Noah was to take two of every unclean animal, but he was to take seven, or maybe even seven pairs, of every kind of clean animal and birds. Now in this passage, God didn't define which were clean and which were unclean. Presumably because Noah already knew which was which. But these clean animals, they were the animals that were classified as suitable, possibly for food, but most definitely for sacrifice. In the next chapter, when the flood was over, it says in in chapter 8 and verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Now as we've seen before in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. So again and again, it introduces a theme that is developed right throughout the Bible and then comes to a culmination as as it points to Jesus. And here again, this is an introduction of a really important theme that carries on right through the Bible. God distinguishes between clean and the unclean. And he wants his people to do the same. To distinguish between clean and unclean. For example, if you, if, if, in look, if you looked at Leviticus chapter 10 verse 10, God said to the nation of Israel, you must distinguish between the holy and the common. 
between the unclean and the clean. And the rest of Leviticus goes into great detail about how to do that. How to distinguish between the clean and unclean places, clean and unclean buildings, clean and unclean food, clean and unclean clothing. And the reason behind all all of this was because who God is. So in chapter 20 of that book, it says this in verse 26. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. So here's the reason why God distinguishes between clean and unclean. Between holy and common. It's because God is holy. God is totally perfect. God is totally separate from sin. And so those people who want to approach Him, those people who want to live in relationship with Him, also need to be holy. And so, following those commands about clean and unclean showed that the people of Israel understood that they'd been called to be God's holy people. And actually, to fail to do that put them in great danger. So, in chapter 15 of Leviticus, it says this, You must keep the Israelites separate from the things that make them unclean so that they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place. So here's a principle. If people want to live in relationship with God, they need to be able to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. Between what reflects the holiness of God and what rejects the holiness of God. But of course, if you've, if you've looked at the Bible before, you'll know that as, we, as you get through the Bible, we learn that the real issue, that it isn't that God is looking for us to, to understand the difference between clean and unclean in relation to food or clothing or places. Instead, God is looking for a holiness that goes deeper than those superficial things. God is looking for something deeper than the external and the physical. So God says the, or Psalm 24 says these really challenging words. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He has clean hands and a pure heart. He does not lift up His soul to an idol. Or swear by what is false. God is looking for internal purity. God is looking for something that is, goes beyond the skin deep. He's looking for a, a holiness that isn't defined by following food laws. Or washing rituals. Or keeping away from certain places or people. But God is looking for a holiness that's a character of our heart. He's looking for holiness inside us. This is what Jesus taught. He said this. 
Jesus said nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man makes him unclean. True holiness isn't defined by what we eat or what we touch. Those things are just simply externals. So we today do not need to follow the rules of the Mosaic law given to Moses about what to eat, where to go, who to approach, and all of those things. They were, that was for that time, for those people, and not for us. Instead, Jesus says, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. And he goes on to say, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. We are made unclean in God's sight. Not by what we have for our dinner. But by our attitudes and our actions. By our words and by our thoughts. By our behaviour and our desires. Because it's these things that display the state of our hearts. It's these things that show our sinfulness. It's these things that show how very far short of God's standards we have fallen. And so the most important distinction here is not about clean and unclean animals. That's not the most important distinction in this passage. Instead, the most important distinction in this passage is about clean and unclean people. Between those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. As I've seen before, God was sending the flood because the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of his heart, of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil all the time. God was sending this flood because of the evilness, the unrighteousness of the people on the planet. But here the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. God distinguished between Noah and his family and all of the other people on the earth at that time because Noah was righteous in God's sight. He was acceptable to God. He walked in relationship with God. He was a friend of God. Now as you thought about last time, that wasn't because Noah was perfect. That wasn't because Noah was sinless. The Bible is clear that nobody apart from Jesus has lived a completely sinless life. But this was because of his faith. It says in Hebrews 11, by his faith, Noah became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was declared righteous in God's sight because of his faith in God. 
And today, God still divides people into two groups. So much of Jesus' teaching emphasised this. Think about it. He divided people into the wise and the foolish. Into the wheat and the weeds. Into the, the ones who will be rewarded and those who will be punished. Those on the narrow road, those on the broad road. The sheep and the goats. The lost and the found. And the thing that determines which group any person belongs to is simply a response to Jesus. So Jesus said in John chapter 3, Whoever believes in him and in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now I know loads of people don't like this kind of idea these days. They are offended by this truth these days. They don't like being categorised as being in or out based on their response to Jesus. It feels too simple, too rigid, too restrictive, too narrow-minded, too demanding. They much prefer the idea that there are many roads to God and we're all on our own journey to Him. But the Bible is clear. We've either been declared righteous in God's sight because of our faith in Jesus or we've been condemned because of our sin. Only those two options. Only those two groups. And Noah's experience here reveals the terrifying consequence of being in the wrong group. Noah was given seven days warning for the coming flood. During those seven days, the animals came to Noah to be boarded on the ark. Then after the seven days, on the exact day that God had said, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and all the floodgates of of the heavens were opened. This was not just a torrential rainstorm. There was also massive upheavals in the geology of the planet that caused underground springs and oceans to just pour forth water on top of the earth. And as a result of the water from above and from below, the floodwaters rose rapidly. And I don't know if you noticed from, in chapter 7, from verse 17 down to verse 20, the writer has just given that sense of the rising of these floodwaters, lifting the ark, covering the mountains, even covering to a depth of more than 20 feet. Now, just out of interest, this doesn't necessarily mean that Mount Everest was covered by 20 feet of water, because most scientists who hold to the Genesis account believe that the geography of this planet was drastically altered here. So we don't know if Mount Everest was the highest mountain at that time. But what we do know is that flood lasted a long time. Rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. 
If you've read about the Bible, that number 40 comes up again and again and again. Often associated with times of testing and at times of God doing something really amazingly powerful. Moses, he was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. The 12 spies investigated the land of Canaan for 40 days. Goliath defied the armies of Israel for 40 days. Elijah, he journeyed to Horeb, the mountain of the Lord, for 40 days. Jonah warned Nineveh of God's coming punishment in 40 days. And of course, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. And he also appeared to his disciples after the resurrection for 40 days. But the 40 days wasn't the end of the flood. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days, we said, we read at the end of our chapter this morning. And actually what we'll see next week is it wasn't until a, more than a whole year till Noah and his family were able to step out of the ark. And the impact of this flood was totally devastating. Look at verse 23. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. This is the terrifying reality of the flood. Outside of the ark, every air-breathing animal and every human being All of the men, all of the women, all of the children on the earth at that time were killed. And for most of them, it came as a complete shock. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 24. He says, in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. One moment they were going about their everyday lives. One moment they were enjoying life, falling in love, planning their future, oblivious to the reality that the flood was coming and the reality was their life was going to be over. And the world as they knew it would be be wiped off the the face of the planet. That was outside of the ark. Inside of the ark. It was very different. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Noah and his family were not surprised by this flood. Noah and his family were not shocked by the impact of it. Because they had listened to God's word. They had believed in God's promises. They had obeyed God's command. And they had trusted in God's salvation. And so on the day when so many people tragically lost their lives as a result of God's judgment on their sin, Noah and his family were saved. They were rescued. They went on to experience a brand new life in a brand new earth. 
So when you think about it, there would be loads and loads of different kinds of people on the earth at the time of the flood. They would look different. They would have different likes and dislikes. They would have different cultures and customs. Different skills and abilities. But ultimately, they belonged to one of two groups. They were either saved or they were lost. There's no other option. No third option that you could vote for. No third uh, experience that you could have. There was no ambiguity either. There was only one way to be saved, so it was absolutely crystal clear which group people belonged to. If they were in the ark, they were saved. If they were outside of the ark, they were lost. And folks, that's the picture of the world today. The Bible is absolutely clear. There's only one way to be saved. One way to be reconciled to God. One way to real life. This is what the Apostle said in Acts chapter 4. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Why is that? Well, it's because only Jesus died for our sins. Only He took our place. Only He paid our price. Only He suffered the punishment that should have been ours. And so our standing before God, a relationship with Him, our eternal destiny depends solely on how we respond to Jesus. Back in John chapter 3 it says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains in him. I hope everyone gets this really clearly this morning. If we are outside of Christ, whatever age we are, whatever experience we've gone through, if we have not personally put our trust in Jesus, if we have not turned from our sins and transferred all of our faith and all of our trust into Jesus and accepted Him as our Saviour and our Lord, then we are lost. It doesn't matter who we are or what we've done, who our parents are, what we haven't done with our life, God's wrath remains on us. And we're heading to a lost eternity. But if we have put our faith in Christ, if we have personally trusted in Him as our Saviour and Lord, then we are in Christ. We have been declared righteous in God's sight and we have eternal life. Life that starts with God right now and goes on forever in a new heaven and a new earth in the future. So for me, this is the challenge of this passage this morning. It asks this really simple and yet the most important question ever. Are we clean 
or unclean? Are we righteous or unrighteous? Are we saved or are we lost? Are we in Christ or are we outside of Christ? I really pray that all of us would be able to declare that because of our personal faith in Jesus, that we've been washed clean, that we've been declared righteous in God's sight, and that no matter what happens, we are saved. But let's not stop there. Because if that's true, what we've been looking at this morning, then there's a whole population out there who are lost. Family members, friends, work colleagues, neighbours, husbands, wives, children, who are still outside of Christ. Who are still in that desperately dangerous and terrifying position of being condemned by God. Heading to a lost eternity. So what are we going to do about it, folks? Are we just going to say, well, we're okay? Who cares about them? Or are we going to let this truth burn deep in our hearts and give us a renewed passion to go out with the gospel? Praying for God's power and His presence with us to be able to share this gospel that we might see people come to Christ and know that they are in Christ, that they are righteous in His sight, and that they're safe for all eternity. Are we in or out? If we are saved this morning, let's go out with the message of the Gospel so that we might see some others brought to know Jesus and to be saved.